Hey there, Pulse Check listeners. This is Jeremy Siegel continuing our series on the coronavirus outbreak. Get that shot, make it hot. What does this mean, the hot vax summer? Well, we're going to have a hot vax summer because we're a hot vax family. After a year of virtual lockdown, America is ready to break loose and lose the mask this summer. Hot vax summer. We're at a weird point in the pandemic. Cases are down in the U.S., vaccinations are up, and people are stoked. Someone literally wrote this song called Hot Vax Summer. I recently saw my best friends in Chicago. Had that classic moment of feeling like things are kind of normal again. Carmen Pawn our global health reporter at Politico, is about to have hers. I'm actually planning to to go back home in Romania at the end of this month to see my family that I haven't seen in two years. So I think that will be my, my big moment for it. And I mean, this is all great. But all of this excitement, it can make you forget about the global state of the pandemic. The pandemic is a long way far from over. And it will not be over anywhere until it's over everywhere. Many are warning that, you know, what we saw in 2020 was a walk in the park. There is a huge disconnect growing where in some countries with the highest vaccination rates, uh, there there appears to be a mindset that the pandemic is over, while others are experiencing huge waves of infection. Already so far, we're on track to overtake globally the number of infection and deaths that we had all over 2020. So if there's no you know, real fast solution, I think things are only bound to, to get much, much worse. The G7 countries are the world's economic and political leaders. They're also home to many of the world's vaccine producers. We will only solve the vaccine crisis with the leadership of these countries. Today on the show, I'm talking with Carmen Pon about the growing calls for leaders of the world's wealthiest nations to do more in the global vaccination effort and what we can expect to come out of the G7 summit this week. Here's our conversation. So real quick before we get into the G7 meeting, what would you say is the state of covid across the world? The state is overall pretty bad. Uh, We are seeing surges in many places in the world, Latin America, Asia, Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of this are also places that have very limited access to vaccines. Um, In Africa, I think less than 2% of the people have received one dose of vaccine. And there's just not enough supply coming in right now um, to be able to say that, you know, they will have a vaccine within the next few weeks or even the next month. Um, Then there's the Delta variant that was first identified in India that has spread to some 60 countries now. Um, For the countries that have high level of vaccination, um, it's probably not such a big concern because it seems the vaccines still work against it. So it should still prevent people from, you know, getting um, seriously sick or or dying. Mm -hmm. But in many countries that don't have that level, that have one or two percent of their people, you know, vaccinated, that's still a very big risk. Um, So, uh, you know, while well, in the U.S., it may look like things are going back to normal. Most of the world is actually probably at its worst stage in the pandemic so far. 
With that backdrop, the group of seven, the leaders of the U.S., the U.K., Japan, Canada, France, Germany, and Italy, they're all meeting this weekend in the U.K. How much of a role do you think COVID is going to play during these talks? I think there are expectations that will be, you know, front and center. Um, if you look at the agenda, I feel that, you know, the, the urgency um, is still not there, or at least not apparent in the agenda. They do have a lot of more things to talk about. But we've heard the Prime Minister, uh, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that he wants to get the rest of his fellow G7 leaders to commit to vaccinated, you know, majority of the world by the end of 2022. Um, so there is a lot of expectation and hope that, you know, these rich countries, most of them that have vaccine supply, most of them that control them because many of the producers, um, you know, are in those countries, would actually finally get their act together and, and really help the world um, respond to the pandemic. Because even with the Delta variant, we're already seeing it threatening the reopening in the UK. Um, so while that might not necessarily lead to death and, you know, and hospitalization, it doesn't mean that if countries are vaccinated and they have enough vaccines for their kids, they're going to be okay. You know, what, what happens in the rest of the world, of course, affects everybody, including the, the rich countries that are meeting at the G7. So you mentioned that Johnson is calling for the G7 to commit to vaccinating the world by the end of next year. We learned yesterday that the Biden administration is planning on buying 500 million Pfizer doses to give to other nations later this year and also next year. He's expected to officially announce that today. But you're reporting that timing is critical here, given rising cases in countries with low vaccination rates and that there are growing calls for the G7 to try to take some immediate action, not necessarily next year. Do you think we could see, I don't know, some sort of pledge or broad announcement come out of the G summit involving coronavirus vaccinations and quick aid? I certainly hope so, um, because, you know, these countries, most of them have sort of like a good vaccination level at home now, and they can spend some time looking at the rest of the world and finding ways to to help. I mean, the main thing that, that you know, officials involved in the international response and global health officials are asking for is really, you know, on the sh very short term um, to donate vaccine doses. And there are calls for anywhere between one or two billion vaccine doses that should be donated between the seven countries in the group by the end of this year. Um, and at least 150 million of them should be, you know, donated immediately, like by August, because as I was saying, many countries in, you know, in Africa and in Asia and Latin America, they don't have vaccines. There's no supply coming in because one of the major vaccine producers, the Serum Institute of India, which is in India, cannot export because it, it needs all the doses it can get for the people back in India. Mm -hmm. So I think if we see any of this commitment and timing, you know, just as many were saying, pledges that they're going to, you know, they're going to be doses donated over the next two years are not enough. Really, we need to see doses now heading from, you know, the U.S., the U.K. into into countries um, in the rest of the world. So you know, we can stop the spread of the virus and this like, you know, ever emerging new variants that many fear that eventually vaccines will not work against anymore. So let me ask about the vaccine supply there is now, because I do find it all a little confusing. We, the U.S., are currently sitting on unused vaccines right now, including ones that could expire, right? 
Absolutely, yes. So there, there are reports. Um, our our colleagues from the from the health team are reporting about Johnson and Johnson doses now being used um, in several states that are expiring at the end of this month. Uh, we are waiting on those sixty million doses of AstraZeneca that are produced in the U.S. Uh, we're waiting on the FDA to clear them to see if you know if they're safe and not contaminated in the production process to to go abroad. But indeed, again, we're going back to the same issue we we're talking about. Timing is crucial. Uh-huh. Because also in some countries, you cannot just send a vaccine that expires in three, four days. You have to make sure that they are ready to deploy it as soon as it arrives at the airport. And that's still problematic in many countries that just don't have the capacity, don't have, you know, necessarily the infrastructure, the roads or or to fly vaccines, especially vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna that require this very very, very cold storage. So it is complicated at times, you know, countries don't only need vaccines, but they also need support to actually get them in arms. Mm. We've seen here in the US that, you know, that was, you know, hard at the beginning and and it's happening all over the world. It's such a massive vaccination campaign that you cannot expect that, you know, once the vaccine is in an airport, it's gonna, you know, magically um, end in, in the arms of people in that country. Like there's so much more that needs to be done. I mean, that's why it's so complicated. But it's it's possible if if you know if the rich countries get together and 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 are serious about it, it's it's definitely possible to do. You mentioned how complicated this all is, and I'm curious, as a global health reporter, how hard is it to keep track of these doses and these donations, and what does all of that tell us about global? coordination? Because just off the top of my head, it's like you have to consider doses that the U.S. has on hand right now to donate, doses it's planning to donate through COVAX, the WHO-led program, donations that could be announced by the G7, I don't know, stuff outside of that. Like, there's so much coming from all over the place. In a way, it makes sense to me that it's a bit of a mess. Yes, you've described my life <laughs> in very in very nice terms. It is it is very hard to keep track of things and I always feel like I'm missing something because I literally have to keep track of the whole world which is very difficult at the moment. Yeah. Um so yeah, the, the you know, most of the efforts are linked to to this global effort led by the World Health Organization and to COVAX. So, you know, a lot of this dose sharing um, is through COVAX. So the idea is to, you know, not duplicate efforts, but to put it all in, in, in through COVAX, or at least part of it through COVAX. And these countries will still have a say in, you know, what countries get them. Um, it's not fully COVAX's decision. Um, and of course, there is, you know, it's been hard at times, and there are definitely different efforts everywhere. Um, in some cases, you know, everyone is trying to do something, uh, maybe not in the most efficient way. But lately, we've definitely seen, at least from sort of like the rich Western countries, um, a focus on COVAX and trying to make sure that they do coordinate with all these other existing efforts to, you know, to make it efficient and make sure that, you know, the countries that haven't received so far many vaccines actually get them. And, you know, if countries have had donations from, let's say, other parts of the world, then maybe they're not the first in line to get vaccines donated by, you know, France or Germany. So um, it does, it is overwhelming and it can be confusing at times, but there is at least so far um, an an attempt to coordinate. I know we've been talking about the shortfalls of the global effort, but what do you think about lessons learned from it? Because I was reading recently about how in parts of Africa, malaria, which there still isn't a licensed vaccine for, has been deadlier than COVID. Looking at health crises like that and future ones that could come up beyond COVID, 
Do you think some of the global coordination we've seen on vaccine development, vaccine distribution could provide a blueprint for success in other health responses? There's certainly hope for it um, that things maybe like, you know, like COVAX um, could sort of, you know, be a frame for future response to crisis, like for a global response to crisis or for making vaccines available as soon as possible. Um, I think the main issue is that, you know, until COVID, many countries um, thought that, you know, diseases like malaria and, you know, other sort of like emerging health threats are a problem only in poor countries with, you know, weak health systems. And COVID has, has shown that actually this is not the case. Um, I think my main question and my main concern would be that once COVID, which has affected, you know, all the world, uh, fades away, that um, these systems will be kept in place also for diseases like malaria, like you're rightly saying, um, that, you know, don't necessarily affect all the countries at the same time in the same way, but they do kill a lot of people. And in some cases, more than COVID did in, in you know, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I think it's probably not going to be to the same extent as it is today, not as intense, but there is there is a lot of hope that part of this will be kept and that it will be used to fight diseases that have long plagued many countries and killed, you know, kids and, and adults in, in many places in the world and that maybe the world didn't care so much about until now. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Jeremy Siegel, and big thanks to Carmen Pon for joining me. To stay up on her latest reporting, be sure to sign up for the Global Pulse newsletter at politico.com slash newsletters. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Pulse Check wherever you're listening. Pulse Check's senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. 